Good. Hey, we're engaged in a series entitled Body Language. And what it's about is being the body of Christ. Who is it that Jesus has called us to be? How does he want us to live? What does he want us to focus on? Who is it personally that we're supposed to be in relationship with him? And this Lenten season, we're concentrating on all of those different thoughts about who we are individually and collectively. So our passage of scripture comes out of Isaiah chapter 11. This is the entire chapter. I'm going to read it to you this morning. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip. I know you're thinking, what an opening line after a passage of scripture like that. <laughs> Stick with me. But Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went on a camping trip. As they lay down for the night, Sherlock Holmes said, Watson, look up into the sky and tell me what you see. And Watson said, I see millions and millions of stars. And Holmes said, what does that tell you? So Watson said, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Theologically, it tells me that God is great and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, it tells me that we're going to have a beautiful day tomorrow. Holmes, what does it tell you? And Sherlock said, well, it tells me somebody stole our tent. <laughs> Have you ever had communications issues? Did you ever meet somebody and, and for whatever reason, you just can't like, like communicate with them? It, it, seems like, uh, it seems like you see the world differently. I mean, you approach every topic from a different angle. I mean, if, if you come from the right side, they come from the left. If you come from the front, they come from the back. And no, what about, no matter what it is, there's always a different angle from their perspective. Or, or have you ever met anybody or had anybody in your life that the moment you see them, your body, I mean, you don't have to tell it to do this, your body just goes, <sighs> a big sigh trying to get the anxiety out and prepare, and prepare for the interaction. 
Now, you know, the answer to those questions are yes, absolutely. You know people and you have people in your life that are just like that. You always see everything differently. You always approach it differently. And, and sometimes that creates anxiety and, and tension and, and stress. Well, you know, our scripture text today points out that there are differences among us. I mean, our scripture text, and this is what I love about the Bible, it tells us exactly the way the world is. It doesn't cover it up. It doesn't hide it. It doesn't try to gloss it over. It tells us exactly the way the world is. And in this passage of scripture, you can look at the, uh, the couples, so to say, the different types of people that are brought into relationship together, a wolf and a lamb, a leopard and a goat, a calf and a lion, a cow and a bear, a child and a cobra. I mean, these couples don't go together. But here they are in Isaiah chapter 11, listed as couples. You want to talk about communication issues. My goodness, a wolf and a lamb doesn't even talk the same language, right? One growls and the other one baas. You want to talk about seeing the world from a different perspective. The lion is always hungry and the calf is just trying not to be the meal. You want to talk about different motivations. There you have the innocence of a child and the slithering cunningness of a snake. There are differences. I mean, there's differences big enough, even in this room, that it could create all sorts of divisions and all sorts of contention and all sorts of disagreements. And the scripture points that out. I mean, the scripture isn't shy in saying, we're all different. We're all made differently. We come from different cultures and different places. Many times we have different thoughts and different ways to approach issues and topics and subjects. And, and that can create difficulties. But the scripture also gives us an alternative to that. In fact, Isaiah chapter 11 and all the scriptures that you read through tell us that through Christ, no matter how different we are, we can have a deep relationship and fellowship in spite of all of our differences. In fact, I think the Bible would say this to us. You are made for relationships. Your creator God made you to live in connection with others. I mean, even, even, even common sense studies tell us that that take place in our world that, that aren't even biblically oriented. Like, for instance, the military, right? They often do studies on why their soldiers uh, perform the way they do. Do you know the most effective way to get a POW to break and give all the intel up? Do you know the most effective way? The military knows this. It's not waterboarding. It's not sleep deprivation. It's not hunger. It's not torture of any kind. It is solitary confinement. You lock a person up, you put them away, you don't let them have contact with anybody else, you don't let them have conversation, and you know what begins to happen to them pretty soon? Their natural inhibitions begin to break down. Man, they, they, their mind begins to snap. In fact, after the last service, I had somebody come up who, uh, who, who works in the prison, and he says, I have seen this over and over and over again in solitary confinement. I have seen 
prisoners being put away, and their minds snap after days of no contact with others. But you know another thing the military uh, has understood through these studies is they understand why a soldier doesn't abandon combat. You, you think, why does a soldier stay there when the bullets start to fly and the bombs start to explode? Well, some people would say it's because of their love of country. Well, I'm not saying they don't love their country. I'm sure they do, right? But, but that's not what keeps them in combat. Uh, some would say, well, it's because they believe in their cause. I'm hopefully sure they believe in their cause, and, and, but that isn't what does it. They say the number one reason that a soldier stays in combat and risks their own life is because of their relationship with the person next to them. They cannot abandon the person next to them. I mean, fellowship, deep relationship. We were made for that very thing. We were made to live life together with others. It's absolutely critical. You know, a recent Gallup poll just came out and it said that, uh, it said that, that approximately four out of 10 people surveyed in the United States say they deal with intensive loneliness at least four times a week, debilitating loneliness. Well, I mean, it, it creates all sorts of, uh, all all sorts of uh, results in their life. But seven out of 10 Americans say they deal with loneliness on a continual basis. Like it may not be debilitating, but they feel alone in life. Now, now, we don't need a poll to tell us that. Hey, we don't need a poll to say, oh, we surveyed so many people and this is what we found out about loneliness. We already know it because we see it and we hear it and we feel it. And, and at least according to this survey, right, if there's 300 people in the room, 200 and, 210 of us deal with loneliness on a regular basis. I mean, that's why the scripture talks about deep relationships. That's, that's why it talks about fellowship. In fact, did you know that, that the four words in the New Testament that are used to describe the church, there's four words that are used to describe the church. The first one was bride. We talked about that last week, right? Another one is, is the church, which means called out. It deals with mission, called outness. Another is the body, which is about unity and functioning together. Do you know what the fourth word is that was used in the New Testament to describe the church? Fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia which simply means a deep, interconnected relationship together. And even the purpose-driven life, right? Now, the book's been out for a while, and many of you might have read that or done a study with it on Rick Warren, and he talks about the five purposes of the church listed in the scripture. Do you know one of those five purposes? is fellowship. That we are supposed to work together and be together in deep, meaningful, connected relationships. Now, I wonder, I, I, I wonder to myself as I think this through, why would we neglect connecting together? Like, like if we didn't connect together, why would we neglect connecting together? Now, the first reason I, I think is because of, because of spiritual warfare. It's simply the influence of the enemy, right? I mean, the enemy does not want you to be deeply connected to other Christians. The, the, the enemy doesn't want you to be deeply connected in, into your faith community. The, the, the enemy doesn't want that, and he doesn't want it for a very simple reason, right? 
He doesn't want you to be deeply connected because the enemy doesn't need a pole. He doesn't need to talk to the enemy to realize this. But even the scripture says this, and the enemy knows it, that two are stronger than one. And four is stronger than one. And 10 is stronger than one. And the enemy knows this. The enemy knows the quickest route to your defeat is isolation. Then the fastest he can take you down is to cause you to live life alone. To try to stand and face what you're facing in life completely by yourself. So, so one of the reasons why we, we don't engage in, in deep relationships is, is simply because, you know, the, we believe the lie of the enemy. And the lie of the enemy is this. The lie of the enemy is, hey man, you got too many other things to do. Man, your life is filled up with this and this and this and this and, and you don't have time to do it. And, 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 and so what happens is the enemy gets us to reprioritize our list. And, and so we reprioritize our list and we put relationship and fellowship and connection down here at the bottom. And, and, and then I don't know if your list works like my list, but, but right, I, I, I don't even sometimes even get to my list, let alone all the way to the bottom of it. So it just never happens. So a lot of times I'm not, I'm not, you know, not connecting or not fellowshipping because of my intentionality. It's happening in my life unintentionally because I'm believing other things are way too important. But you know, there's another thing other than spiritual warfare that keeps us from like engaging in deep relationships. And the other thing is, it's just hard work. I mean, fellowship is hard work. I mean, look around. Look around the, the worship center here for a second. Now, now I want to say something. When I look around the room, there's one thing I realize. I look around the room and I say, this is a pretty good-looking group of people. I mean, you guys ought to be, you know, you guys aren't slouches. You're well-dressed. You're well-kept. You're, you're good-looking folks, you know. There must, you must have some lineage from way back that's just being, right, being, you're, you're just inheriting all the way through. You're good-looking folks. Of course, they do say, that a congregation often takes on the characteristics of their pastor, but we don't, we don't have to go there. That's a, that's a whole nother sermon, probably a series. But anyhow, um, you know, but, but when we look around the room, it doesn't take us long to figure out that we don't simply have a room full of lambs or a room full of children. I mean, we have our fair share of lions and cobras and wolves and I don't mean like negative characteristics where they don't have integrity, they don't, I'm just talking about personality types. But I mean, there's all sorts of personality types that exist together in this room. Well, you know, you know Jesus's model of discipleship, right? When Jesus wanted somebody to follow him, you, you realize that Jesus did not invite you to a welcome lunch. He didn't say, hey, we're having a welcome lunch after church. Stay and hang around. You'll get to meet some folks and da-da-da. Jesus didn't invite people to welcome lunch or, or, or even a getting started class, right? Hey, come to getting started and I'll tell you all about what we believe and, and, then, and then all about what we do and then all about. Jesus didn't do that, right? I mean, we do those things, right? We have a welcome lunch. We have a getting started class, which would be great to engage as, right, points of like trying to get connected and trying to build relationships and trying to get to see what's available. But, but Jesus just simply said this, follow me. And a lot of times the people said, oh yeah, I'll follow you in just a minute. He said, no, 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 follow me now. Like you remember when, when he called Peter, 
right? And, and Peter was fishing and he had to say, hey, cast your net on the other side of the boat because Peter wasn't catching anything. And then he caught all these fish and it was like, whoa, what a catch. And he gets to shore and Jesus says, Peter, follow me. And he's like, oh man, I got to get these to market. I have all these fish I got to take care of. And Jesus is like, no, no, follow me now. Well, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to go have lunch and then we're going to have dinner and then we're going to hang out and then we're going to fish together some more things like this we're even going to pay our taxes together we're going to do all of these things together we're going to live life together i mean the way that the way that jesus discipled was he discipled in relationship in living life together because the reality about what jesus calls us to is it is more caught than it's taught. You see it and you experience it and you feel it. And then you go, oh, that's, that's how I'm supposed to live as a follower of Jesus. In fact, the early church kind of followed the same model. If you look at Acts 20, 20, they give a really simple breakdown. That is, they went to synagogue together. Then after synagogue or temple, they went home with each other. So it's like they went to service, then they went home. They went to service, they went home. They went to service, they went home. At the very least, it's a 50-50 split. But the truth of the matter was, it was probably a 90-10 split. They probably lived life together in relationship, in connection, in doing life together 90% of the time. And 10% of the time was a worship service or a Bible study or a... I mean, those are all methods, right, that the church uses to help us live into being the fellowship. We do a church service. We aren't a church service. We do Bible studies. We aren't a Bible study. We're a, we're a group of people deeply connected to each other through a common bloodline that flows from Calvary's Hill, right, from Jesus himself. Well, think about all of the origins of fellowship and the way that fellowship is said to flow in the scriptures. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, it, it talks about we have fellowship with God. We have relationship with God. In Philippians 2, 1, it talks about how the Holy Spirit comes into our life, and now we have fellowship in the Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, we have fellowship. Philippians 1, 9, it talks about how that fellowship begins to naturally flow out of us when we have fellowship with God and we have fellowship in the Spirit, one of the things that happens to us is we have this great desire to have fellowship and deep relationship with others who are believers. And then in Matthew 28, it talks about this incredible thing that happens through our relationship together is it says we begin to reprioritize and learn a new agreed upon purpose. All of a sudden, because of this fellowship and this connection with God and the Holy Spirit and with each other, there begins to be unity and there begins to be purpose and there begins to be direction that God delivers to us in our purpose. And then John chapter 13, Jesus says himself, you know what the most effective evangelistic model we have is to share Jesus? You know what the best way that you can share Jesus? Love each other. He said, that's the way the world identifies us. What's supposed to make us different is our great love, right? The way we love each other, the way we take care of each other, the way we speak to each other, the way we just, right, the way we don't let division sneak in, even when we have different thoughts, it's this love. And he says, man, the world will know your mind because of that. And when you read about 
the nature of the church in the scripture, you see that biblically, the church is a fellowship. We do a lot of things, but we are a deep group of people deeply related. Now there's five things, five ingredients to a fellowship. Here they are. The first one is grace, right? We say this often here. We say great relationships aren't built on performance because we always don't perform that well. It's not built on perfection because none of us are perfect. It's built on grace. I mean, we know this. Every married couple knows this. The only way you're going to make it in relationship together is when you say, I'm sorry, and you say, you're forgiven. We understand that. That's the way relationships make it. That's the way they work. And grace is present in the midst of, of the body. And then generosity is present. Right? Not only is grace present, but generosity is present. That is that we give what it is that we have. Right? Our time and our talents and our treasures, we give it. Remember what John, remember what John wrote in 1 John? He said this, right? As he traveled around with Jesus, he learned this. He caught this. Right? When John says, if you see your brother in need and you do not help them, do you remember what he says? What's the next line? How can the love of God be in you? Right, because the love of God does something to us. The fellowship with God through the Spirit, it does something within us. And one of the things it does in us is it makes us generous towards each other. And humility has to be a part of it. Right? I mean, I, man, I, I mean, humility, if, if, I'm, if I always think I'm better than, than the person next to me or, or smarter than the person next to me or I know more than the person next to me, that's going to divide. That's not going to unite. The reality is, is you can learn from me and I can learn from you and we can grow together, right? And that idea of humility is so powerful, right? That even allows grace to take place. That allows me to say, I'm sorry. Without humility, how do I even begin to think that there's another perspective in this world without humility? And then vulnerability is a part of it, right? That's one of the ingredients, right? Vulnerability, I have to make myself vulnerable, warts and all. I have a good friend and he's one of my accountability partners and we were talking this week and he's a pastor, he pastors in Michigan, but, but we were talking this week and, and, and as we were talking, we were saying, oh, you know, it's like you hear things about churches all the time. Oh, that church, man, I want you to know their music program is the best music program in town. Oh, that church, I want you to know their pastor, man, they have the greatest teaching in town. Oh, that church, I want you to know that church, man, they are the wealthiest church in town. Oh, that church, that church has the best youth group in town. Oh, that church, that, 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 that church is the friendliest church in town. He said, what if we stopped and didn't worry about any of those things? And what if all of a sudden we said, our goal is to be the most honest church in town? We're just going to be honest. We're going to be honest about ourselves. We're going to be honest about each other. We're just going to be vulnerable. I mean, what would God do if that was our perspective? We're just going to be honest under the reality that none of us are perfect and all of us fail. And then the final ingredient, right, that has to take place in this body is intentionality. You know, uh, you know a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while. Right? So you stumble into some things that end up being wonderful for you. And because of the grace of God, sometimes we stumble into more things that, that are wonderful for us. But Jesus calls us to a level of intentionality. Like to do what we do on purpose. 
to say, hey, boy, if relationships and, 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 and community is, is, is important and it's this vital, then, then I need to do that with intentionality. I need to have a plan. I need to take the next steps that, are, that, that a community offers to, to, to get connected at those sort of levels, right? I need to be intentional about this. You know, all those things, right? Powerful, wonderful thoughts of action for us in those, those five ingredients. But, but like if we would say, how, how really? What's the, what's the motivation? What's the real power behind uh, the, the fellowship? Well, you know, back to our passage of scripture, Isaiah chapter 11. So Isaiah chapter 11, when we look at it, we break it down. We see here that the first six verses in the chapter of, of Isaiah, the first six verses talk about when Christ comes. Like what's he gonna do when he comes, right? And, and you see it there because it talks about, you know, a uh, 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 shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. But you, know, you know who Jesse is? Jesse is King David's father and a shoot will come up from his stump. It's, it's talking about heritage. It's talking about lineage is what it's talking about. Right, so, it's, so what it's doing is it's drawing a line from Jesus all the way back through David to Jesse, right? A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, right? Through King David. That's Jesus' lineage. That's his, his heritage. And, and, and you see it, right? You see it, through the, you see it through the scriptures as you read that. And then it begins to talk about not only his heritage and his lineage, his family line, but then it begins to talk about how he's going to establish his kingdom. Like, what are the things that his kingdom are going to be built on? He's not going to judge by what he sees. He's, he's not going to judge by what he hears. He's going to judge by what is right and what is holy, it says. Right? And he's the one who can determine that because he's the one who can see that. And then it, then it goes into a bunch of other terminology that talks about establishing the forums of his kingdom. You know, how, you know what, what's his kingdom going to look like? And then we get to the last three verses in the chapter. Right, that was the first six verses. Then we get to the last three verses of the chapter. And the last three verses of the chapter, uh, they're about what the kingdom is going to look like. What is the kingdom of Christ going to look like? And that's where we read, you know, the wolf and the lamb, the lion and the calf, the child and the cobra. It's talking about how kingdom people are going to function in relationship with each other. Now, now, let me tell you where we get confused about Isaiah chapter 11. Almost every time we read any passage of scripture that talks about the coming of Jesus, we tend to think it's about the second coming of Jesus, okay? Because Jesus has come, but Jesus is coming back. Well, there definitely are passages of scripture in the, in the scripture that talks about Jesus' return, his second coming. That's not Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, are you following me? Old Testament passage of scripture, right? The prophet Isaiah is not talking about Jesus' second coming because he hadn't come yet. So Isaiah chapter 11 is talking about Jesus' first coming. It's his first coming. And, and you know what happens to us? Every time we read about Jesus' coming, we don't think about it in the chronological terms in which it's delivered to us in the scripture. We always think, hey, you know, when Jesus returns again. So for us, the question when we work at Isaiah 11, we always ask the question, that's right, when Jesus comes, when he comes, this is the way it's going to be. 
When he comes, this is how his kingdom is going to be built. When he comes, he will judge not by what he sees or not by what he hears, but by what is holy and right. And, and, and when he comes, that's right, then the, the lion will be with the calf and the wolf and the lamb will be together and the child and the cobra can. When he comes, you know the only problem with that thinking is in Isaiah chapter 11, Jesus came. Like he fulfilled Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 is about his first arrival. It's about the first advent, not the second. Right, it's not about the second coming. It's about his arrival here. It's about his birth in Bethlehem and his life on earth. It's about his death on the cross and, and the forgiveness that's available to us. It's about, it's about the resurrection from the tomb. It's, it's, about, it's about Pentecost and the filling of the Holy Spirit and living a transformed life. That's what Isaiah chapter 11 is about. But when we look at Isaiah chapter 11, we say, when he comes, yeah, when are you gonna come? When are you gonna come? That's the wrong question. You know what the right question is? Where? Has he come? Not when has he come? Where has he come? So the question we should ask ourselves out of Isaiah chapter 11 is not, boy, when he comes, when is he going to come? We should ask the question, where has Jesus come? Has he come here? Because if he's come here, then he's establishing his kingdom. If he's come here and here and here and here and here and here, it doesn't matter if you're a lion. It doesn't matter if you're a wolf. It doesn't matter if you're a cobra. It doesn't matter if you're a lamb. It doesn't matter. Man, you live in his kingdom. You are a part of his kingdom. You are a new creature created in Christ. So, so you know what? Cobras in the kingdom, we, we put our fangs away. And lions in the kingdom, we learn to, what did it say? Eat straw like the ox. And if, we're, and if we're a child in the kingdom or we're a lamb in the kingdom, you know what we learn to do? We learn to trust and be vulnerable. And man, in the kingdom, right, if Jesus is king, where he is king, his kingdom exists. Man, if he's king here, then we do no harm. We love each other and we help each other and we offer grace to each other, and we're generous to each other, and we're vulnerable, and we do it all with great intention and on purpose, because that's what our king calls us to do. So, so I don't know this morning. I mean, I don't, I don't know how you would describe yourself. I don't know if you'd say, man, I'm a, I'm a lion, you know, you want to know what my conflict management style is? We do these little things with staff all the time. You know, my conflict, and, and the, the thing we use gives you an animal. It doesn't appear in chapter 11. I'm a shark, they say, in my conflict management style. So you know what that means. 
my natural tendency, if I smell blood in the water, I don't avoid it. I towards it. And, and so, right, I mean, that's right. That may be naturally who I am or how I function. And, but then that has to come under the leadership of the Spirit. I mean, I don't know who, I, I don't know who you are in this chapter. I know you'd say, man, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this. There's roles for us all to play if he's king in the kingdom. You know, this morning we're going to celebrate, uh, we're going to celebrate communion. One of the sacraments of the church. Protestant church has two sacraments, right? Communion and baptism. Last service we celebrated a wonderful baptism right over here. And, and man, we celebrated both sacraments of the church in one service, right? Big Sunday. We're celebrating today communion. If you don't have the elements, uh, if you raise your hand, our ushers will make sure that you, that you get the elements. And feel free to pull back the wrapper so you can have access to the wafer that's there and, and pull back the foil so you can have access to the juice. And for those of us at home, hey, grab your scone or your muffin. Um, you know, get your coffee or your orange juice. You know, representative. It's representative. How good it is that we are family. That we have deep-seated relationships that come from a common bloodline that's his. And this is our table. It's a table of grace and forgiveness and mercy and generosity and vulnerability and intention. This is the food that feeds our soul. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ which was broken for you. May it preserve you blameless until he comes. Eat this in remembrance that the body of Christ was broken for you and be glad. This is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ which was shed for you. May it preserve you blameless until he comes again. Drink this in remembrance that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for you and be glad. Jesus, we thank you for your wonderful mercy and your incredible grace. We thank you, Jesus, that, uh, that you loved us so much that you wrapped yourself in flesh and you gave yourself on that cross of Calvary for all of our wrongdoing, for all of our failures, for all of our sin. And Jesus, I praise you that when we believe, when we really believe, man, when we get this whole unconditional love thing, boy, how you, you not only change our eternal destiny, you transform us from the inside out. That Jesus, how powerful the thought that lions and lambs can live together in unity and harmony that they can care for each other and protect each other and love each other. And how powerful that is to a world that looks on and says, who is this Jesus? Who are his followers? 
Man, how, how wonderful, Lord, how great it is and how much praise we give you. Thank you, Jesus, for your powerful grace and mercy and love. And in response to your goodness, Jesus, receive what it is that we bring today. Man, we are generous in the kingdom. We're generous to each other. We're generous towards the mission and the purpose. So Lord, find us obedient. Find us as people in your kingdom. We're your king and there is no other. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you in your name. Hey, thanks so much for watching this video. I hope that you enjoyed it and that you got a lot out of it. If you feel like you need to respond, you can visit fairviewvillagechurch.com prayer and you can fill out the forms there and let us know how we can be praying for you. Or you can scan the QR code below and that'll take you everywhere you need to go for next steps. Thanks so much for joining. We hope you have a great week and looking forward to connecting with you.